you will, please open your Bibles to James 5, 1 through 6. James 5, 1 through 6. And I'm going to go ahead and read that. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Notice, church, how it starts here. It says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. What an explosive comment. We have James here delivering a severe warning. And you'll see here, given the tone and the language that he uses, he's, he's giving a warning in anger, specifically righteous anger aimed at grabbing their attention. But not just their attention, all those who are hearing this letter being read out loud. Did, it, did you ever have that moment as a kid when... Your mother or your father was really laying into your brother or your sister. And that, that angry threat wasn't directed towards you. But you got from the tone of voice that you kind of understood what was going on. And you didn't want to find yourself in that same place. That's what's going on here. That's how James is using the tone here. Now some claim James is addressing the rich without the rich being in the room so that the poor believers would see how God is going to treat the rich in the end. Other people say, well, no, that the rich were in the room, but they weren't believers because James doesn't call them to repent at the end of this verse here. But here's my take. We know that the rich are in the room because earlier when he was talking about the sin of partiality, it was specifically for not treating the rich differently than the poor brother or sister that would be in the room. And you got to remember that James is writing to the church in dispersion. So they're leaving those places because of persecution. So why would you, if you're not a believer or claim to be a believer, why would you ever find yourself with a group of believers at this time? So we know that the rich are present. We know that they're identifying with believers. And what James is doing as you go through the book is you see that he's pricking their attention, their intention and their interest all the way through as he mentions it. And now he's about to drop the hammer. And so he says here, with, with the eyes wide open, James delivers this warning, come now you rich, weep. And how for the miseries that are coming upon you. You see, those who are rich, there is such misery coming your way. There is such agony, despair, grief, sadness, heartache, 
suffering, torment coming your way that you have no choice but to weep and howl. These words were used by the prophets in the Old Testament, and it, it's defined as an inarticulate shriek of terror. The command by James is not given as a temporary command. It, it's ongoing. In essence, James' words, he's commanding them to continually weep and howl and shrieks and terror because their fate lies in eternal condemnation. Every person hearing this letter aloud, whether you were rich or poor, would have been astonished by what they heard. It would have been a shock to the systems. You, you would have heard audible gasps in the room. And there's no difference in how the disciples responded in Matthew 29, 23, excuse me, Matthew 19, 23 through 25. He says here, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, who then can be saved? If the rich can't be saved, who then could be saved? You see, at this time in history, the wealthy were seen as the, the proof of God's approval. It was assumed that the rich had this fast track, if you will, to heaven. And when anybody challenged this with, with authority and clarity, it was shocking to think that the rich had any need to weep or howl. It was incomprehensible. So it begs the question, who are the rich that James is speaking to? And understand that we'll go through the context a little bit. You see, thus far, James has presented the audience of his letter with several tests. Tests that measure the genuineness of our faith. The tests of perseverance, impartial love, righteous works. And the tongue, just to name a few. The verses today are a warning to the rich oppressors that prompt another test as to believers' response to that oppression. Ultimately, it's a, it's a call to respond to the rich oppression with patience that endures suffering. Patience that endures suffering. And that's what Pastor Charlie preached about last week. Now, at this time, there's basically two classes. There's those who are rich and those who are poor. One historian said that there is no middle class at all. You got to realize that by, by and large, this was an agrarian society. You either had the wealthy landowners or you had the poor day laborers. One made the upper class, one made the lower class. We certainly identify that today. We have an upper class that does really well. And they are rich, they are wealthy. And we also have a lower class that are impoverished. But today, more than 50% of our population is made up of what we call the middle class. You see, unlike then, they didn't have any laws and programs in place to make sure that people weren't oppressed. But we do in the U.S. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen all the time, but it doesn't happen as much as it could have had. 
And so times have changed. Society has changed, especially for us in the U.S. And I think, please hear me, church, I think we are at much greater risk today in associating with the rich in these verses than we are associating with our impoverished and oppressed brothers and sisters from times past. So who are the rich in the 21st century? Who are the rich, the wealthy in the 21st century? A lot of us go, it's not me. It's not me. See, the guy down the street points to the guy up the street. The guy up street points to the guy up the hill. The guy up the hill points to the guy up in the mountains. The guy up in the mountains points to the guy at the lake. The guy at the lake points to the guy at the river. The guy at the river points to the guy at the beach. The guy at the beach points to the guy on the island. The guy on the island then points to the guy in the yacht. Yeah, he's rich. But so was everybody else that I mentioned in that story. You see, in our mind, it's never us that's rich. It's never us because we always have somebody to compare ourselves to. So who are the rich? James is going to define that for us as we go through the verses today. So look at verses 2 and 3. It says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You may have there... In a different version, it says hoarded. You have hoarded treasure in the last days. And so what James does is he's giving us three clear categories of collective wealth here. He first starts with riches, which what he's showing here is food. These are riches. It's an abundance of food. This might be grain or fruit or meat. Then he goes to, to garments, referring to fine clothes and linens. And if you understand these fine clothes at that time, they just weren't the normal clothes that we wear. They actually had jewelry embedded into them and fine embroidery. And lastly, he mentions gold and silver, referring to the precious metals and money. All these define wealth. But you'll also notice that each one of these categories comes with a shelf life. The riches rot, the garments are eaten, and the money corrodes. And regardless of the fact, regardless that the owner's wealth is destined for deterioration and decay, it remains their life's ambition. It remains their life's ambition. And you can see based on their decay that it's never enough it was never enough they continued to accumulate and accumulate more and more hoarding their wealth and as a result the rich had so much food that the food rotted they had so many clothes that they were neglected and they had so much money that they buried the excess i think we can all agree that Rotted food, moth-eaten clothes, and corroded money are useless. In essence, what they valued the most was useless 
and it was worthless. You see, the uselessness and the worthlessness of this wealth speaks to the uselessness and worthlessness of the richest ambition and earthly pursuits. James 1.11 says, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Notice at the end of verse 3 of where we are today, it accuses the rich of hoarding their wealth and accumulating their earthly treasures in the last days. What are the last days? The last days are between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And so what he's saying here is the rich are placing their trust and their confidence in their wealth that's temporary and destined for destruction at what? At the expense of placing their trust and confidence in Christ where they would experience true riches for eternity. Giving up one for the other. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, it says here, Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, church, the rich bury their treasure where it corrodes, and by doing so, they bury their heart with it in their hope for salvation. But, but those who are rich in faith, those who pursue treasures live in glory with our Heavenly Father for eternity. Amen? What about us, church? What is our life's pursuits? What are our ambitions? Are we focused on worldly wealth or heavenly treasures? You see, many of us go to work day after day and we work hard. We spend time trying to focus on creating a lifestyle that caters to our needs and our and our wants, and we're focused on buying a home and are, or improving the one we have. We're focused on a new car or whatever it might be. We're constantly in the pursuit of improving the quality of our lives. And at the same time, we're preparing for a rainy day. To that end, we invest in all types of things. We invest in the savings accounts, college accounts, retirement accounts. Maybe some of us invest in stocks and bonds and bitcoins and real property. We strive to have pantries that are full of food and closets that are full of clothes. And please hear me, church. There is nothing wrong with this in of itself until, until it comes at the expense of our investment into the kingdom of God. That's when it becomes a problem. It's utterly shocking and indefensible that only 13% of Christians sow into the work of the church with their tithes and their offerings. It's even more shocking and incomprehensible that the average giving per churchgoer is $17 per week. 
I was reading a survey. It says that the average coffee drinker in the United States spends an average of $23 on coffee per week. What? There's a problem. There's a big problem. We're doing that all the while our unbelieving neighbors and family and friends are walking towards eternal damnation. All the while we starve the proclamation of the gospel and fulfilling our beliefs full of comfort and want. Our brothers and sisters are being persecuted around the world. And we as Christians, maybe not everybody, but we as Christians with the large sea sit on our hands. And the list goes on and on. Church, what is true of you? What is the testimony of your checkbook? You see, if we are pursuing and hoarding earthly wealth at the expense of heavenly treasures, this warning is for us. You see, it says here in verse 3, there, in that the wealth's corrosion will be evidence against you, the rich, and will eat your flesh like fire. The very thing they've worked so hard to hoard is the very thing that testifies against them and condemns them to eternal damnation. You see, the wealth is slow in its corrosion, and the body of evidence is slow in its growth as it slowly mounts. But the judgment, notice the judgment and the resulting punishment, it will consume as fast as fire. You see, those who spend their life pursuing and counting on the comfort provided by the riches of this world at the exclusion of the kingdom will find themselves eternally uncomfortable. Matthew 6.24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve what? God and money. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve both. We as Christians, especially in the U.S., seem to make it our mission to accomplish such a task. But to do so is futile. One will always suffer at the expense of the other. Church, we have a choice. We can either seek first his kingdom by investing the, the best of who we are and what we have, or we can spend our lives building our own kingdom. But you can't do both. I want you to hear this. It doesn't mean that God won't or can't bless you as you pursue his kingdom. I don't want you to hear that. But it does mean that he won't bless you with the greatest treasures when you pursue your kingdom at the expense of his. So who are the rich? Here's our first definition, and it should be on the screen. Those who pursue and hoard worldly wealth 
at the expense of heavenly treasures. Those who pursue and hoard worldly wealth at the expense of heavenly treasures. As we move on, we'll see here in verse 4, it says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. What James is doing here is he's making a bold and blatant accusation. One that everybody is thinking in the room, but one that nobody's got the guts to voice. James is calling out the rich, knowing that these wealthy Jewish landowners are very familiar with the Torah. Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15 says this, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in the land within your towns, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and be guilty of what? Sin. You see, these landowners knew this, but they still held back the wages of the laborers who mowed their fields. It's important that, to note that the poor, as mentioned in that verse, counted on their wages daily because they were literally eating hand to mouth. To go a day without eating meant a day that they were going to suffer. That's one of the reasons why you look later in the passage in verse 6. It says, you have murdered and right, the righteous person. Did the rich literally murder the righteous person? And did they go out into the field and shove a farmsicle in their gut? No. But the result of them defrauding the labors of their pair, in essence, accomplished the same. They might have well have taken a sickle and put it in their gut. It would have been kinder to do that than allow for people to, to anguish in starvation. And you'll see here it says, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You see, now we have two people that are crying out. Two groups of people crying out. In the beginning, we have the rich who should be crying out because of the miseries that await. And now we have the oppressed and impoverished day laborers actually crying out because of the miseries they're currently enduring. And you'll notice here, only one bends the ear of our Heavenly Father. You see, our Heavenly Father hears the cries of those who are suffering and at the hands of injustice. God hears the cries of his people. You see, for the unbelieving rich, their temporary comfort will turn into eternal misery. But for the suffering believer, their temporary misery will turn into eternal comfort and glory. James 2.5 says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You see here, it's the very wages that are withheld that testify to the fraud and injustice. Not unlike the decaying wealth that testifies to the worthlessness of the wealthiest pursuits. You see, to defraud anything that's rightfully owed to somebody is a sin. Romans 13, 7 says this, Pay to all 
what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. It really does make you think. It does beg the question of what is the testimony of my checkbook. And you're thinking, well, whew, this one doesn't apply to me, right? I pay the people that I owe. I pay my bills on time. I, I pay my taxes. You know, I do all those things as a business owner. I, I pay my, my vendors. I pay my employees, my creditors. I'm like, whew, good. It's a little bit of breathing room. Take a break. Malachi 3, 8 through 10 says this, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you and your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be good in my house. I have to ask the question, are we as believers robbing God? Are we robbing God? You see, most people live with more month than money. You heard me right. We live with more month than money. You see, many of us have made financial decisions that have squeezed out every dime we make for the purposes of paying for our standard of living. And when we do that, when that happens all too often, the ability to sow into the kingdom of God and bless other believers becomes choked out. It becomes a mere afterthought, a prayer of promise. God, one day, God, one day when I get this right, then. God, one day when you bless me, then. At what point do we wake up and ask the hard question? Am I robbing God to invest in myself? The second definition of the rich is this, those who pursue and hoard worldly wealth at the expense of others, including God. Those who pursue and hoard worldly wealth at the expense of others, including God. We transition to verse 5 here. It says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What James here, in using that word, he's talking about this excessive feasting and drinking. That would be luxury. And when he talks about self-indulgence, it's to indulge oneself excessively in satisfying one's own appetites and desires. If you wanted to boil it all down, you could define it as excess or more than they need. And that's exactly what James is pointing out here. And a metaphor of fattening the heart. It's true today as it was back then. The way that you fatten an animal is you do. You give it more food, caloric surplus, than it can expend, right? It happens to me, right? When I'm in a caloric surplus, my pants don't fit. And it's not that they don't fit vertically. It's that they don't fit horizontally. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. The rich are fattening their hearts. They're indulging themselves in the godless desires of their hearts. In other words, they're feasting on the abundance of their desires 
and their hearts are growing fat. You see, these fattened hearts are a testimony once again against the rich, and they have prepared themselves for the day of slaughter. What is the day of slaughter? It's the day of judgment. You see, the indulgence or the enjoyment of excess is often sinful. And it doesn't just apply to the rich. I want you to think through these examples. Pride is the excessive view of self-worth and self-importance. Gluttony is the excessive appetite for food. Greed is the excessive desire to hold on to things. Jealousy is the excessive love for things we can't have. Wrath is the excessive manifestation of anger. And the list goes on and on. And this is no different when it comes to the excessive enjoyment of material possessions of wealth. There's a powerful scene at the end of Schindler's List, if you've seen that movie, and if you haven't, I suggest you do, where he realizes that some of the excess he has that he owned and previously enjoyed could have been used to purchase more Jews out of their inevitable death sentence it's an incredibly sobering scene first he looks over at his car and he realizes that when he looks over at his car he says this could have saved 10 more people i could have gotten 10 more people and then he looks down at his lapel and he sees a golden pen and he thinks to himself this could have gotten me two more i could have purchased two more out of this situation, maybe one more. And in that moment, even though Schindler was incredibly heroic and courageous, there was a sense of guilt that pricked his conscience because he was convicted and therefore convinced that he could have done more. How much more, church, should we be convinced to shed the excess in our own lives as we've been tasked with the great commission to be co-laborers with Christ in spreading the gospel so that all who hear and respond find salvation and eternal life. Do we dare pause and take stock of our own life, the excess that we may have? You see, excess without kingdom purpose is sin. It's sin. It reminds me of the parable of the rich fool in Luke. Luke 12, 16 through 21. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother divide the inheritance with me. But he has said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, 
Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, thus far we said that those who pursue and hoard worldly wealth at the expense of heavenly treasures are a part of James' warning. Then it's those who pursue and hoard worldly wealth at the expense of others, including God. And now we come to our third definition. It's those who indulge in the excess of their worldly wealth at the expense of their eternal salvation. What a terrible trade-off. And then last, certainly but not least, we come to verse 6. It says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You see, not only were the rich guilty of defrauding the poor laborers, but they would take advantage of the poor landowners. And what they would do is they would take them to court. And by taking them to court with no means to defend themselves, they would also take their land. And that's why it says, does, he does not resist you. A Jewish writer put it this way, he says, to take away a neighbor's living is to commit murder. To deprive an employee of wages is to shed blood. You see, the way in which the rich were treating the poor was if they were condemning them and committing an act of murder with no means, with no means to support themselves. These poor believers were left suffering at the hands of the rich. So the fourth and final definition for today, church, is this. Those who increase worldly wealth by extorting the vulnerable. Those who increase worldly wealth by extorting the vulnerable. So who are the rich? Who needs to heed James' severe warning? And I'll recap just one more time. Those who pursue and hoard worldly wealth at the expense of heavenly treasures. Those who pursue and hoard wealth at the expense of others. Those who indulge in excess of their worldly wealth at the expense of their eternal salvation. And last but not least, those who increase worldly wealth by extorting the vulnerable. Those are the four definitions that James gives us. The scary part is you don't need all four to be warned in this passage. You only need one. You see, there's only one that puts us in a place to be outside the will of God. It only takes one to put us on the road to condemnation. And so you've got to ask yourself, especially for those who don't believe, Pastor, what must I do to be saved? And we find that in Matthew 19, 16 through 26. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, in all confidence, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And 
Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And then Jesus said to his disciples in verse 23, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of God. Difficulty. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Impossibility. When the disciples heard this, they had, were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And I want you to notice what verse 26 says. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, Jesus is saying that it is difficult and nearly impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But then he says, and Jesus concludes, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, there's salvation in God because God made the impossible possible. How did he do it? He did it through the sacrificing of his own son. So that our sins, the sins listed here would be forgiven and our relationship would be reconciled back to the Father. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I hope today you take an opportunity to talk to us about it. We're going to have a time of prayer and it would be a perfect time to come up to talk to somebody about that and pray through that. But what about us as believers? That's who James was writing his letter to how can we as brothers and sisters who have resource who have resource avoid being the rich person identified in this passage and i want to give you three ways to do that weep over your sin weep over your sin as i was getting ready for this passage church I can't tell you how many times I've wept over my sin. Weep over your sin. If the testimony of your wealth cries against you, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you and move you towards repentance. Pray for forgiveness. Pray that God would provide tests that would challenge you specifically in this area of your life. Have the courage to ask for those challenges, for your, for your, for your faith to be tested, to be found genuine. Defend the weak, number two, defend the weak. Look for ways to elevate and defend people's human dignity. Look for ways to practically help them. Take opportunities to engage them by listening to their story and understanding them, their circumstances. And then number three, submit your abundance to God's authority. Open your eyes to the needs around you. Look for ways to sacrifice your surplus for those who starve. Starve is a big word. You realize right now that there are more people living below the poverty line in India than there are people living in the entire United States. 
There are those who are starved of safety and security. Right now, there are 25 million people a year that get trafficked, sexually trafficked. And then pray for those who starve of the gospel. Right now, over 1 billion people on this planet have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, I call you to pray. Pray about sacrificing, what it means to sacrifice above and beyond your faithful giving to bless people in need, physically, emotionally, mentally, but most important, spiritually. Amen? Amen.